We are in the middle of chapter 30, which is a serious exercise in humility. We are looking at ourselves and we are trying to apply the teaching of our sages. Be of a humble spirit before every person. And that means every other person on the face of this earth. How are we able to do that? So first we looked about not judging because we don't understand what kind of tests they face on a regular basis. Whether it's physical tests, the environment they're exposed to on a regular basis, or spiritual tests, their tempestuous, fiery, passionate nature. And then we started to say, one second, why are we any better? Let's look at a person who is sinful and does not fight the mighty war that he's supposed to fight just in order to keep regular moral civil code. Okay, he doesn't fight it. But when we have to fight a battle of that nature, do we fight a battle of that nature? And the altar give us examples. When we pray, do we pray with that kind of effort to the extent of pressing out the soul? What about Torah? Do we, do we truly study Torah to the extent of waging that kind of war? And what about, about charity and acts of kindness? Do we give charity with that kind of devotion and selflessness and really a war. And then we have to be honest with ourselves and say we don't. And if that's the case, really, why are we any better? Then we're equal. He's not willing to fight, and we're not willing to fight. And that was for just the realm of do good. We were saying he's not good in the realm of turn away from evil. And we're looking at our challenges in the realm of do good and we're not fighting that level when it comes to do good. But now let's look at our own realm of turn away from evil and see, are we fighting with that kind of valiance as we expect the simple person to be fighting? So here we are. We're in the middle of page five. Actually, right at the bottom. We're at the right at the bottom of page five. And here we go. Ba'afilu b'fchina sur meira. Even in the category of turn away from evil, every thinking man can discover within himself that he does not turn away completely and totally from evil. So even in the category of turn away from evil, every thinking man can discover within himself that he does not turn completely and totally away from evil. In a situation requiring a battle of the level, meaning the magnitude described above, the battle required the Kal Shabakalam, or even in a situation requiring a battle of a lesser magnitude. So we're not fighting as hard as we expect him to fight, but we're not even fighting a little bit less than we expect him to fight. And let's look at these examples where we are not fighting as much as we should be fighting. Example one. For example, he may find that he does not summon up the strength to stop in the middle of a pleasant gossip. Okay. What's a pleasant gossip? We clearly are not speaking about Lashon Hara because that's forbidden. That's just not acceptable. We're not speaking about Lashon Hara. Sichana, they translate as a pleasant gossip. In plain regular Hebrew, Sichana is a pleasant conversation. A permissible 
but nonsense conversation. So when are we allowed to speak nonsense? I mean, usually a person is not supposed to be speaking meaningless conversation. But for example, if they're in a place where they can't be studying Torah, a filthy alleyway, they can't be studying Torah, so they can speak about other things. Or they have to take care of their business. And during that business conversation, they, you know, make small talk. Now, a lot of times people think that having a simple, silly, nonsense conversation is harmless. But in fact, in a Hasidic discourse in 1952, in August 1952, the Rebbe compared idle talk to thorns in a vineyard. And just as thorns steal the nutrition and the water away from the vines, idle talk, even idle talk that a person doesn't take pleasure in, Think about a silly conversation that you don't even enjoy. You think, what? I'm not enjoying it. If I'm enjoying this nonsense, then probably it's feeding my animal soul. But if I'm not enjoying the nonsense, then it's probably not feeding the animal soul. And actually, that's not true. What it's doing is it's robbing away nutrients from the divine soul, entangling it, and hindering it from progressing. So here a person is having a pleasant but meaningless conversation that's permissible. And he's not stopping. It wouldn't take such a great war to stop this conversation. The same kind of war that it will take the sinful person, it's not taking him. And yet, he doesn't stop himself from having this conversation. Or here's another example where we don't fight even not such a great war as we expect of a sinful person. I sipor bignus chaverai. Or in the middle of relating a tale discrediting his fellow. So here are two examples where... We are expected to put up a fight to stop ourselves. The fight that we need to stop, the fight that we need to put up in order to stop ourselves is not the kind of battle that the sinful person has to put up. It's of a lesser magnitude, in the middle of a silly conversation, in the middle of not outright Lashon Hara, because that would be forbidden, but a tale that's somewhat disparaging. If you read the, between the lines, you see there's a certain dishonor or discredit towards the fellow. Why would somebody be speaking that kind of conversation? So here's an example. As he ought to do, even if it's a very slight slur, and even it be true, and even though his purpose in relating it is to exonerate himself. As is known from what Rabbi Shimon said to his father, Rabbeinu HaKadosh, concerning a problematic bill of divorce that was improperly written. I did not write it. Yehuda the tailor wrote it, where the slur was a minor one, and the purpose was self-vindication, and yet his father replied, Keep away from slander. No theory in the Gemara, tractate by Basra, beginning of chapter 10. So, the story was that a bill of divorce was brought before Rabbi Hodahanasi. It was a tied document. There were folds. He looked at the document. He didn't see the date. He said, this is invalid. There's no date. His son said, check between the folds. Maybe the date is written between the folds. And he did. He checked between the folds and he found, indeed, the date was written. He was very upset about this document that was kosher but very problematic. And he looked at his son with a stern look. And his son said, I didn't write it. Yehuda the tailor wrote it. And his father said to him, keep away from slander. Commentary is explained. He didn't have to say he wrote it. He could have just said, 
I didn't write it. So here we're talking about an instance where the slur was a very minor one. He didn't do something outright bad. It just wasn't perfect. Whatever he was saying was actually true. He was saying this in order to clear his own self. He was being accused of something that he did not deserve to be accused of. And another thing is that he was trying to honor his father because his father was upset that his son wrote a document like this. So these are all good reasons why he could have said it. And nevertheless, his father stopped him and said, keep away from Lashon Hara. So we're looking at situations where people are not careful. They're not careful in having meaningless conversations. They're not careful in disparaging their fellow. And even if it's just a minor, minor slur. The same applies to very many similar things which occur frequently. There too, one will find that he does not resist his evil impulse as he ought to, even in the category of turn away from evil. So first of all, until now we were saying, you know what? Let, yes, he sins all the time in the realm of turn away from evil. And our struggle is putting forth a battle mighty enough in the realm of do good. But now we're looking at the realm of turn away from evil. And we're saying, one second, even in this realm, if we're honest with ourselves, why are we any better? We're faced with situations on a regular basis that we are not completely and utterly turning away from evil. Meaningless conversations, disparaging tales of our fellow, and yet we stumble in this all the time. And here's another area. Ubifrat this is especially true with regard to sanctifying oneself by refraining from indulgence in permitted matters. So this is a very interesting and important concept in Judaism. Sanctify yourself in that which is permitted to you. The Ramban explains, Nachmanides, that a person could just look at the Torah and end up being a novel Bershus Hatira, a degenerate with the Torah sanction. He's doing kosher food, he's doing business honestly, and yet he acts in a gluttonous and unrefined manner. For example, the Torah permits marital relations, and yet a person can indulge himself in a greedy way that is to totally unbecoming to the Torah way of life, in a selfish and greedy manner. Or, the Torah allows us to eat food, right? We're supposed to eat food. We need to eat food. And yet, a person can eat only kosher food and even simple food, make the blessing, and eat with proper table manners, and yet be so absorbed in satisfying his palate that it's not the Torah way. Or, a person can be conducting business honestly, and yet he can be so absorbed in money that it becomes a personal idol to him. And again, this is not a Torah value. So in, in order to draw this line of, yes, you're permitted, but do it in a holy and refined way, the Torah tells us, be holy. The Chachamim put it in this way, Sanctify yourself in that which is permitted to you. Now this is a very, very tall order because the line is so fine. How do you know when you're indulging in the right way? Well, indulging is already the key word here. So how do you know when you're partaking in the right way or when it's not the right way? Because we're not promoting an ascetic lifestyle. That's not what we're promoting here. But we're 
promoting a lifestyle that is totally in tune with our mission in life, and that is only for Hashem. So for example, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Rabbi Yehuda the Prince, was so fabulously wealthy that they said about him that his stableman was richer than Shabur Malka, King Shabur of Persia. He had every kind of food that was seasonal available all year long. For example, he, he had radish, lettuce, and cucumber. The Talmud said all year long he had radish, lettuce, and cucumber on his table. He said radish breaks up the food, lettuce stirs up the food, and cucumber expands the intestines. And now, before Rabbi Huda passed away, he stretched out his ten fingers heavenwards and he said, Master of the universe, it is revealed and known before you that with all my ten fingers I toiled in the Torah, and I did not derive pleasure of this world, even from my pinky, my small finger. So this is a man who lived in luxury, and before he passed away he was able to attest that he did not derive pleasure for pleasure's sake. The Shalah HaKadosh speaks about the story. He said, look at the words of Rabbi Hodanasi. He didn't say, I didn't eat. He said, I did not take pleasure. Because whatever he did was for the sake of Hashem. He was doing this so he can have an expanded mind, so he can be healthy, all in service of Hashem. And there's a story of Repinchas Reitzis, and this was a student of the Alter Rebbe. He was, going to brick, he was going to build a brick mansion in his hometown of Shklov. Now, in Shklov, any mansion would have been a sight to see, but especially a brick mansion. It was like, wow, brick mansion. So before he builds his mansion, he brings the plans to the Alter Rebbe. And the Alter Rebbe looks at him and he says, Pinchas, why do you need a brick mansion? And he said, believe me, Rebbe, I cried more tears than there will be bricks in my mansion. But if I have a brick mansion, then the communion meetings will be taking place in Pinchas's house. And if, the, and if the community meetings are taking place in Pinchas's house, then the Hasidic Shemalamid, the Hasidic teacher, is going to have a job. Now, if I don't have a brick mansion, the community meetings will not be taking place in my house, and the Hasidic Shemalamid might not have a job. And the Altar Rebbe looked at him and said, Pinchas, you are right, for you it's a good thing to have a brick mansion. Why was he having a brick mansion? Because he understood that in order to be part of important community decisions, a brick mansion made him prominent in the eyes of others. So he was he doing it for himself? No, he was doing it to further Hashem's agenda. And here's another story of a wealthy man who came to the Mizritur Magid, that was the teacher of the Alter Rebbe. And he asked him, the Magid asked him, what do you eat every day? And he said, I eat bread and salt like a poor man, Rebbe. And the Magad said to him, oh no, a man like you needs to eat meat and wine every day like a rich man. When he left, his students were very surprised. And they said, Rebbe, why did you tell him to eat meat and wine? He said, because if he eats meat and wine, then he understands at least that the poor man needs bread and salt. But if he eats bread and salt, then he's going to think that the poor man can subsist on rocks. So... I'm telling these stories to put it in context. Kadesh Asmacha Bermutalach, sanctify yourself in that which is important to you, is keeping your eye on the mission in life. Yes, eat the food that you need to eat. Go, take your jog that you need to take. Go on vacation that you need to take. Whatever it is that you need to do in order to be healthy, to serve Hashem. It's not about never relaxing, 
reading a good book, taking some time out to just space out. All of this, as long as it replenishes your energy with this focus in mind to serve Hashem. And I feel like I need to stress that because sometimes people take it in an intense way and they misread it and they're doing something that's not the way Hashem wants. It's not about becoming an ascetic. It's not about becoming intense and tense and saying, one second, I can never relax right now because Hashem doesn't want me to relax. No, you need to relax so you can rejuvenate your spirit and serve Hashem. There's a very interesting interpretation that I read recently. And this was about the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We just had that in the Parsha recently, right? Where Adam and Chava eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now the Rambam in Merenavuchim, the guide for the perplexed, says, here's a question that a, that a learned man asked me. He couldn't understand what was bad about eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It sounded like it was a very good thing for Adam and Chava to have eaten from the tree. The man posited that before they ate from the tree of knowledge of good, good and evil, man was like an animal. Everything was just by instinct. And once he ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, then he became more human-like. And the Rambam says, no, that's not true. When man was created, he was created B'Tselem Elohim, in the image of God. He was created initially with intellect. But the way he made decisions was a totally different way. His intellect told him, look at things as true or false. Once he ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, now he had a new set of criteria how to judge. Now it became good, pleasant to me, or bad, unpleasant for me. Now it wasn't about true and false anymore. Now it was about good or bad. And not in the way as in truly good or bad, because truly good would be true and truly bad would be false. This is how does it feel to me. So before he ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it was a good food meant a healthy food, because that was a true food. A good business dealing meant an honest business dealing, because that's a true business dealing. A good conversation meant an upright and worthy conversation, not a gossip or nonsense or dishonest conversation. But once he ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it became a whole new set of criteria. Now, is it pleasant for me or unpleasant for me? Now we have to get out of that, right? So we have to follow the Torah's injunction of make yourself holy. It has to be right or wrong not good and pleasant for me or bad and unpleasant for me. So if we look at this carefully, we realize that a lot of people slip in this area because it's very, very challenging in each and every instance of encounter with this material world that we grab that moment, that we grab the opportunity and sanctify it. Now, in case we think it's not such a serious thing, the Altar says right away, This is a biblical command. To be holy is a biblical command. Derived from the verses, you shall be holy and sanctify yourselves. So some codifiers codify to be holy as one of the 613 commandments. But some of them don't. Some of the codifiers don't count these as one of the 613 commandments. And instead, they count this to be a rabbinic injunction. And nevertheless, Alder is going to say, 
if it's a biblical command, then we understand it's very, very serious. And if it's a rabbinic command, we have to understand it's very, very serious and maybe even more serious. Vigam divrei seifrim chamurim mi divrei Moreover, even according to the opinion that this commandment is not of biblical origin, yet rabbinic enactments are even stricter than biblical laws, etc. So what does that mean? I want to unload this statement so that we understand what it means and not take it out of context. So I want to look at this statement from the Talmud, that the words of the sages are more stringent than those of the Torah. What does that mean? So the Talmud is speaking about Azakin Mamre. Azakin Mamre is a rebellious elder. That means that the Sanhedrin, the high court, rules one thing, and then he goes single-handedly, a Torah scholar, you can imagine, he's charismatic, he's learned, and he takes a stand against the majority. And he says, the law is not like them, it's like me, follow me. A person like him is deserving of the death penalty. Now, whenever we say death penalty, everybody gets so nervous, and rightfully so, but just to understand, the death penalty didn't take place very often. In fact, Rabbi Lezer ben said, a court that put somebody to death once in 70 years is considered a bloody court because there were too many details to have to be met in order for the person to actually be deserving of the death penalty. But just to understand how serious his sin is, if all the proper requirements were met, he would be getting the death penalty. This rebellious elder, this suffering Mamre. So if he says to everybody, don't put on tefillin, you don't have to wear tefillin anymore, he's not liable for the death penalty. That's an outright biblical law. He's contradicting an outright biblical law, and yet he will not be deserving of the death penalty. However, if he tells the people, it's not four compartments in the head to fill in, but rather five compartments in the head to fill in, then he is liable for the death penalty. So when he contradicts a Torah law, he is not liable. When he contradicts a rabbinic law, an rabbinic enactment, a rabbinic interpretation or tradition, he is liable. Now, there's a very basic reason for that, and that is because if a man gets up and contradicts outright what it says in the Torah, we know not to listen to him. He pointed himself out already. Now we know he's not a Torah sage anymore. Whatever he is, he, he put himself out of the line. But if he comes, a learned man, a scholar, and stands up against the rabbis, the Sanhedrin, and he says, my opinion is different, He's dangerous. He's a loose cannon. He can cause disunity and confusion of the law. And so somebody like him needs to be put to death. So this is on a simple level to understand why it is that rabbinic law is stricter than Torah law. But there's also a mystical reason behind this. And that is that when something is created permissible, we have four levels of klipa. Klipa is the other side, the side that is not inherently holy. It's e in, in the world of Kabbalah, it's black and white. It's either holy or it's the other side. There's no in-between. However, on the other side, there's two levels of klipa. Well, there's four levels of klipa, but they're in two categories. The, the best category is klipa snaiga, the luminescent klipa, the klipa that's rectifiable. That's where most of our work in our lifetime is, taking things that are not inherently holy and transforming them and making them holy. A person who does that is like they're bringing up a sacrifice. 
In fact, in chapter 7, we learn that somebody who eats meat and drinks wine for the right reasons is like he brought a sacrifice. That's what klipas noga is. That which is not inherently holy, but then we take it and we elevate it to make it holy. Now, there's another category, and those are the three completely unclean klipot. Those are untouchable. Those are unrectifiable. The way we rectify them is by staying away from them. Pork. There's nothing we can do to make that kosher. If somebody eats pork, God forbid, and then goes and davens with that energy, it still doesn't get elevated. There's nothing they can do to elevate it. It comes from the word asur. Asur means tied up, bound. It's locked up. Mutar, on the other hand, permitted means it is untied. We can rectify it. If something is asur, it is tied up, it is unrectifiable. Let's say something started out by Torah law as being mutar, untied, permitted, rectifiable. It gets its spiritual energy from klipas naiga, the rectifiable klipa, the luminescent klipa. If the rabbis declare that this is no longer permitted, they change the source energy for that substance. Now they channel different energy to it. So instead of the energy being channeled to that substance being klipas naiga, it becomes shalish klipais hatameis lagamri, the three completely unclean klipais. And that's why the words of the sages are more stringent, because they are able to take something that was started out as being okay, permissible, able to be rectified, and they transformed its energy into something that is non-rectifiable. So, either, either. Either we're going to say that sanctifying yourself in that which is permitted to you is a biblical command. We know right away that's very, very serious. Or we're going to say, no, it's not a biblical command, but it's a rabbinic injunction. You think that's not serious? That's very, very serious. And in certain respects, it's even more serious. So we're not getting away from this easy. This is something that everybody is has to do. There's, there's no getting out of it. Okay, so let's wrap up what we said until now, and then we're going to move to the next place. We were looking at now the realm of turn away from evil. Here we are thinking of ourselves that probably we're better than the person who sins all the time because while well, we may not give it our all when it comes to the realm of do good, but at least when it comes to the realm of stay away from evil, we are great. Well, not so quick. Look at the things in the realm of turn away from evil, of having nonsense conversations, of speaking disparagingly about a fellow, about permitting ourselves luxuries that we didn't need and we did not use the energy properly for serving Hashem. In this area too, we are just as committed as the sinful person who will not put up a fight. And not only won't we put up a fight, we won't even put up a fight of a lesser magnitude than he needs to put up in order to stay away from some very severe transgressions. So the question becomes, how does this happen? A person of such a high caliber, of such a refined character, who really works on himself. We're talking about a Benoni here. He really works on himself. How does he come to falter in these areas? So the altar is now going to explain. But all these and similar matters are among the sins which people trample underfoot, insensitive to their importance. So a lot of times people sin because they don't realize how serious that is. David HaMelech says in Tehillim, Avain Akevai Yesubeni. The iniquity of my heels will surround me. There are certain sins that people don't think are so important. What's the big deal? I'll just speak nonsense for a little. It's fine. Or I didn't say anything wrong about him. I just, you know, if you read between the lines, you know what I think about him. Or 
okay, I could indulge with luxuries. What's the big deal? Let me kick up my feet for a little. These are sins, but people trample them underfoot so they don't realize how important it is. And furthermore, and which have come to be regarded as permissible because they are committed repeatedly. Here is a very amazing idea from the Talmud in Yuma. Rav Huna says that if a person sins and then sins again, it becomes permissible. Really? The Talmud asks it becomes permissible? So he, eat por- he eats pork once, God forbid, and then he eats it again and now it's kosher? No, that's not what it means. It means that if he sins and he sins again, to him it now becomes like it's fine, like it's kosher. The first time he was shocked. He felt the pollution. It just touched him at the core. The second time it's like, oh yeah, what's well, a big deal already? It's not a big deal. I heard a really, um, I was once listening to a class by Rabbi Simon Jacobson and he said a line like this. He said, everybody makes mistakes. Just don't make a philosophy out of them. Our problem is that once we make a mistake, we have to justify ourselves and we have to make a philosophy out of them and say why what we did was not just not bad, but it's even good and kosher and holy. I have a great story from about like 15 years ago when one of my kids was in preschool. He was two and a half and we had some Purim party and they made a kosher jello with these jellyfish swimming in the water made from all that garbage, the food coloring, and who else knows what kind of artificial ingredients was in there. And I really didn't want him to have it, but of course I couldn't confiscate it. And I didn't have anything else to offer him instead. So as we were walking out, I said, you know what? This is really yucky. It's not good for your body. Your body wouldn't like it. I think you should throw it in the garbage, but you don't have to. If you want to, you can eat it. So we keep walking, we walk past the garbage can. I said, here's the garbage, it's so yucky, maybe you want to throw it out. And he said, no, I'm gonna eat it. So that's it, he brought it with him to the car, he ate it, we're driving home. And then all of a sudden I hear a little voice in the back and I hear, mommy? And I said, yes. And he goes, eating jellyfish brings Mashiach right now. We do this all the time when we make a mistake We can't just say it was a mistake. Now we have to say that this that I did brings Mashiach right now. This that I did, not only isn't it bad, it's actually good. Somebody sins and they repeat the sin again, it becomes to them as if it's permitted. It's so important for us to hold strong to that and remember this principle because the first time we do something wrong, it bothers us. The next time we don't even realize we did something wrong anymore. And this is why people keep faltering for these same sins again and again. Because at this point, they're not bad, they're good, they're permissible, they're fine. All the above mentioned calculations then can lead one to conclude that he is no better than the Kal Shabakalim. Like the Kal Shabakalim, he too fails to wage war against his evil impulse when it is required of him. Yet, this still does not explain the requirement that one consider himself lower than every man. In what way is he worse than the Kal Shabakalim? In answer, the Alta Rebbe continues. So we get it. We're on the same level. He doesn't fight. We don't fight. We don't fight in the realm of do good. We don't even fight in the, of the, in the realm of stay away from evil. But that just puts us on an even level with him. Why are we supposed to feel inferior to him? Remember, at the beginning of this chapter, we were trying to come to the recognition of how to be truly humble before every single human being, even the person who is most sinful. So the altar says like this. Aval, the MS, im hu yadea sefer, umachsik b'tairas Hashem, 
In truth, however, if he is a scholar and upholds God's Torah and wishes to be close to God, this is somebody whose dreams are not made up of fame and glory and wealth and good food and material pleasures. That's not his aspirations. You know what this man's dreams of? This man's dreams are about kirvas Hashem, being close to Hashem. We're looking at a person who truly desires the holiest things. He is a person who is a scholar and desires closeness to Hashem. If this is the case, His sin is unbearably great. These are like the words of Cain, how he asked Hashem, Is my sin too great for you to bear? A person who is of such a high caliber, who is a scholar, who wants to be close to Hashem and he makes his mistakes, his sin is unbearably great. And his guilt is increased manifold for his not waging war and not overcoming his impulse in a manner commensurate with the quality and nature of the war mentioned above that the Kal Shevakalim must face. His guilt is far greater than the guilt of the Kal Shevakalim, the most worthless of the street corner squatters who are remote from God and his Torah. Their guilt for not summoning up the fear of God who knows and sees all their actions in order to restrain their impulse which burns like a fiery flame is not as heinous as the guilt of one who draws ever nearer to God, his Torah, and his service. So, what does this mean? He's doing a much lesser offense and yet his guilt is much greater. Something of an analogy for this would be a king has a very close minister who is his friend and confidant. If he is not doing anything outrightly wrong and yet something is lacking in his devotion or he's distracted from him or he turns away, his offense is much, much greater than a simple villager who outright disobeys the king. He's his close friend. He's his confidant. He understands the importance of the king. He knows what it means, loyalty and devotion. And he's distracted from the king. He loses some devotion. His offense is much more serious. There is a story of the Chassid, of Chacha Fagin. He lived in Poltava. And this was during the rise of communism, where keeping Judaism was, of course, strongly deterred. And... One of the residents there was a shoemaker, a very simple, ignorant person, and he decided that's it. He's going to start keeping his shop open on Shabbos. So this was a great desecration of Shabbos because in that town, nobody desecrated the Shabbos. And here comes the shoemaker, and from now on, his shop was open on Shabbos. This was great Chil Shabbos. At a Hasidic Fabrengen, Reb Chacha told his fellow Hasidim, every Shabbos when I pass, that man's open shop, I am filled with a deep sense of humility because we consider him to be Michal Shabbos, that he desecrates the Shabbos, and indeed he is. But what does he know about Shabbos? Nothing. He doesn't even understand what the importance of Shabbos is. He doesn't even know its laws properly. And yet me, who understands what Shabbos is, who study the mystical teachings about Shabbos, and when I don't dedicate a few moments of Shabbos as they should be dedicated, 
It is I who is the true Mechal Shabbos. And with that, he broke into bitter tears. So he understood and appreciated. Yet th- this man is outright desecrating Shabbos. He keeps his shop open on Shabbos. But what does he know about Chalil Shabbos? And him who understands the beauty, the holiness, the sanctity of Shabbos, when there are few moments during Shabbos that he doesn't use as befits the holy day, he considered himself to be truly the Mechal Shabbos. As our sages of blessed memory said of the apostate, Acher, Alisha ben Avuya, because he knew my glory, said God, if despite this he still sinned, his guilt is far greater. So Alisha ben Avuya was an exception. He had a tragic story. He was a great Torah sage gone heretic. He was one of the four who gazed at the secrets of the mystic chariot. He became an apostate. Now his, great, his sin was so great that he heard a voice come out and say, Shuvu banim shayvavim chutz me'acher. Return away we're children except for acher. Meaning that he was not going to get assistance in doing teshuva. His student Rabbi Meir never left him even after he became a heretic. One time they were walking together on Shabbos. Actually, Rabbi Meir was walking, but Acher, Elisha ben Avuya, was riding a horse. And they get to a certain place. You remember, he's walking alongside him because he's learning Torah from him on Shabbos while he's riding a horse. Now, normally we can't do that. The Gemara questions, how was he able to do that? Because you're never allowed to learn from somebody who is not of a sterling character. But this was Rabbi Meir. He was different. He was able to extract the good and throw out the evil. The rest of us cannot do that. Nobody else can do that besides Rabbi Meir. Okay, so they're walking together. And at one point, Acher turns to Rabbi Meir and says, Meir, chazor bacha. Meir, go back. I was counting by the gallops of my horse. We reached the Chum Shabbos. You can't walk past her on Shabbos. And his student, Rabbi Meir, says to him, You chazor bacha. You do teshuva. And he said, I told you already. I can't. I heard a voice say from Shemayim, everybody returned except for Acher. And so Rabbi Meir wouldn't take no for an answer. He grabbed him and brought him to one base medrash after another. They walked into 13 different Bate Midrash. And Acher would ask the children there, tell me what you're learning. And one after another, they would repeat a verse from Tanakh that would speak about Hashem's rejection of wicked people. When they reached the 13th base medrash, he asked the little boy, tell me what you're learning. And he said from Tehillim, And to the wicked one, God says, how dare you repeat my statutes? The little boy had a stutter. He had a lisp. He couldn't speak clearly. And instead of saying, and to the wicked one, it sounded like he was saying, and to Elisha Hashem says, how dare you say my statutes? And Elisha took this as a sign. And he felt like he couldn't do teshuva. There is nobody who cannot do teshuva. Everybody can do teshuva. But for somebody like Acher, who was of such a high caliber, who knew Hashem's glory, he went into the orchard. He was able to gaze at the secrets of the mystic chariot. And he turned his back on Hashem. How serious of an offense that is. There are people who did worse than Acher, but they were assisted in doing teshuva. Why wasn't Acher assisted in doing teshuva? Because... He was so close. He knew Hashem. And yet he turned his back on him. His sin was so much graver. Therefore, our sages declared 
in regard to the illiterate that deliberate sins are regarded in their case as inadvertent acts, since they are unaware of the gravity of their sins. With a scholar, the reverse is true. An oversight due to lack of study is adjudged as being as grave as a deliberate sin. Thus, his failure to restrain his evil impulse is indeed worse than the failure of the Kal Shabakalim. So, a few things over here. First of all, this is not to say that every person who keeps the Torah properly and yet slips up in a minor transgression is to be compared to Acher, God forbid. That's not the story here. The reason why we're bringing the story of Acher is to prove the point that somebody who is so close to Hashem and yet turns his back on him, the sin hurts so much more. It's much more offensive. It's much more severe. The insult is much stronger. For example, look at two couples. One couple is so close. They are so good to each other. They're kind and they're respectful. And then one day, the husband turns to the wife and says, you know what? Every single day, I want about 10 minutes where I pretend I'm single. I want to forget about you. I want to pretend I'm not married to you. Just for 10 minutes. I'm not going to do anything bad. I just want a little bit of time where I forget about you and I feel like I'm single. That's really, really offensive, right? Like, and that's an understatement. Now, what about another couple? They have, unfortunately, a terrible marriage. They're always fighting. They don't respect each other. The husband is an addict and a gambler and a whole other things that you can write a book about him. And then one day he turns to his wife and he says, you know what? I just want to forget about you for 10 minutes. I want to pretend that I'm single. I want to pretend that I'm not married. I mean, it's not that offensive. So whose statement is much more offensive? The good husband. His statement is much more offensive. But who is the better husband? The good husband. So yes, if we're going to measure who is righteous and who is wicked, we're going to use this criteria. This person is careful with the mitzvahs. He's careful not to keep to transgress Averis. He is legally the better person. But whose offense is graver when they turn their back on Hashem, even for something minor? The one who knows Hashem, the one who's close to Hashem, that's when it really, really hurts. And here's another reason for us to feel very, very humble in front of the Kal Shibakalim. Because ultimately when a person who is of a great character, when they turn their back on Hashem, the offense is much, much graver. And in that sense, they're even inferior to the Kal Shabakalim. There's like a funny little children's comic about a man named Fischl, whose wife says to him one day, you know what? My laundry line is broken. I need a new rope. So he said, okay, no problem. I'll get you a rope. And he goes around the city. He's looking, where can I find a strong rope? All of a sudden, he no notices these two sturdy poles. He doesn't realize that this is part of the army telecommunication system and he sees strong ropes hanging on top wow those looks like really great laundry ropes so he first shakes the poles to make sure that they're sturdy yeah they don't need these ropes okay so he climbs up he starts snipping the rope and before you know it a whole bunch of soldiers come they grab him they put him in handcuffs and they bring him in front of the general they think he, the general is going to chop off his head or something i mean he must be a spy he's a guy who is cutting the army communication system so the general looks at him and says, tell me, who sent you here? He said, my wife. She needed a new laundry rope. And those poles looked sturdy enough to stand even without the ropes. The general looks at his soldiers and say, give him a kick and send him home. He's not a spy. He's just a fool. So did he know what he was doing? Yeah, on some level, he knew he was taking scissors and he knew he was cutting ropes. 
But he, did he understand the severity of what he did? No. Could he be, his head be chopped off for that? Why? He didn't know what he was doing. And that's why our Chacham said that somebody who is ignorant, even something that he considers to be, it looks like it was a willful sin, right? An ignorant person did a willful sin. But Chacham said it's still considered inadvertent. They had no idea what they were doing. In fact, you know, Yom Kippur, when we dive and we say, And let the sin of all the Jewish people be forgiven and the proselytes who live among them because for the whole people it was inadvertent. Ultimately, if we truly, truly understood Hashem, if we truly, truly understood what it means to do a mitzvah or God forbid, the tragedy of an Avera, none of us would ever sin. All of us would be putting every fiber of our being in order to serve Hashem. And at some level, we're all doing, acting inadvertently, even when it looks like it's willful. By contemplating this, the observant scholar will now be able to fulfill the instruction of the Mishnah, quoted at the beginning of this chapter. Be of lowly spirit before every man. Thereby, he will crush his own spirit and the spirit of the Sitra Achra in his animal soul, enabling the light of his soul to permeate and irradiate his body, as explained in chapter 29. Meaning, the purpose of this exercise at the end of the day is in order to get rid of the condition of having a numb heart, come to true humility, so our soul will be able to shine within our body. And um, there's actually a quote from the Ramban, Nachmanri's letter. He writes like this, Every person should be greater than you in your eyes. And if you are wiser than him, ponder in your heart that you are more guilty than him. And he is more innocent than you. Because if he sins, he is innocent. But you are guilty. That's the same idea presented by Nachmanides, the Ramban. So I'm going to sum up this chapter. And that is that another way of coming to genuine humility is by fulfilling the words of our sages. Be of a humble spirit before every person. That means that a person must know and feel that he is more lowly and inferior to even the most sinful person. Truly. How do we get to this space? By the meditation on what our sages told us. Don't judge your fellow until you come to his place. Because it's his place that causes him to sin. His physical place, the where he makes his livelihood, the marketplace, the corner sitters, as well as his spiritual place, the nature of his fiery, passionate evil inclination. Now, in order for him to overcome his evil impulse, which burns within him like a flaming fire, this sinful person must call upon profound and mighty inner strength. So then, we have to ask ourselves, the spiritually developed person must ask himself, do I overcome my body and animal soul with a battle of this nature that's required of the sinful person? And if not, then at the depth of the matters, we are just as devoted to Hashem as that sinful person is. If a person will think through these matters deeply, each of us will come to realize that we do not put up a mighty struggle. Not when it comes to do good, keeping the mitzvahs optimally, and not even when it comes to turn away from evil, to completely and totally stay away from anything forbidden. Now, since the spiritually developed person knows and feels just how important it is to be truly devoted to Hashem, his rebellion in not putting up such a profound fight against his evil nature is greater than the rebellion of the sinful person. 
because the reverend person, while he does commit grave sins indeed, he has no idea, no understanding, no perception of all at all of how truly grave his sins are. And if this is the case, then the spiritually developed person is more guilty than the sinful person. And that's the end of chapter 30. So I'm opening up now for questions and discussion. Everybody's on mute. So if you have something to share, please unmute yourself. I just have a question about the, uh, like the nonsense conversation because it seems like so much of our conversation, just chatting with people could really be nonsense. Like how do you, how do you define oh. that and like what's appropriate, what's not? So that's a really good question because we have to be careful with that area. Like sometimes we're having a small talk conversation in order to make somebody else feel comfortable. And that is withholding intention. I once read a story of a chassid who came to town, a profound scholar, a genius who never wasted his time. And he meets uh, like a farmer. And he's having this whole conversation with him about how his chickens are doing and his goats and how much eggs and how much milk. And Chassid, who was watching, was very surprised. I mean, is this what he talks about? And so afterwards, he asked him about his conversation. He said, really? You spend so much time speaking to him about chickens and goats? He goes, what do you think Avi Sisrael means? Avi Sisrael means I need to speak to him in a way that he could relate to me. And so he had this, for him, was a nonsense conversation, but it wasn't a nonsense conversation. It was a holy conversation showing love and kindness and relating to somebody who wouldn't relate to his world. But just in general, if we, think, if we think honestly within ourselves, we all know that nonsense conversations, for the most part anyway, drain us. I don't think anybody feels good about just speaking stupidity. It, it's draining and it's silly to just waste our time. It's better just do nothing. Read a book. You don't always have to be talking. It says, Mila basela mashtuka batrin. The Gemara says, if a, word, if a word is worth one sela, silence is worth two. We have to judge within ourselves. It's about doing it for Hashem. So when it becomes to a place where a person feels taxed and intensed and weighed down, they know that they need some type of spiritual adjustment because that's not what it's supposed to be here. It's supposed to be freeing, enlivening, uplifting. If it doesn't feel that way, then they have to speak to a spiritual mentor to find the right balance within themselves. I don't think I told the story at this class, so I'll share it. And that is that... Um, Again, this official, and there's these comic books by Gadi Polak. He brings some really important moral lessons for children. So official is the beggar, and he's coming to the rich man, Reb Zalman's house. He's begging him for a tzedakah. Reb Zalman is just pulling up with his sled, and there's some merchandise on it that's his. So he says to official, he says, listen, you carry in my packages, and I'm going to go inside and get changed, and then I'll pay you five rubles for carrying in my packages. So he said, okay. So Zalman runs inside to get changed. It was a long trip snowing outside and meanwhile official gets busy to bring in his package package or two whatever it was and then he finishes and he screams okay Zalman I'm done could you pay me now so Zalman the rich man looks over from the banister and he says official you brought in the wrong package and he said I don't understand you didn't see the package I put it in the next room he goes I don't have to look at the package I have to look at you you are sweating profusely and my package was a light package so this muscle is to explain that a lot of times people are burdening themselves with what they think that Hashem is demanding of them. And when they're starting to sweat that, that way and to feel resentful and hurt and harmed, they have to realize it's not Hashem's package that they're carrying at this point. 
they're carrying their own package because Hashem's package is a joy to carry. In fact, the Talmud discusses what is the different, what are the different species for you know sukkahs, the lulav, the esrog, and one of the things that they were discussing was, I think it was for the myrtle branch, and they were giving some hypothesis what it could be, and one of the hypotheses were a thorny bush, and the chachamim said, oh no, impossible, it can't be a thorny bush because it says derechaha nayam. Its ways are ways of peace. The Torah would never ask you to hold a thorny bush. It doesn't mean that Hashem doesn't want us to work very hard. He wants us to work very, very hard. But we have to realize what's the mindset. Uh, just again, in line with this, I heard recently about, you know, we had the story with Sarah and Hagar and how Sarah made Hagar work very hard. And so it seems like a little strange. Here she is, a kind woman, the wife of Abraham, who's the, you know, epitome of kindness. And suddenly, he's, she's making Hagar work so terribly hard, she's afflicting her. So, this is just a homiletic interpretation. It's not the basic interpretation. So, the answer was as follows. She wasn't working her any harder than she was working for her before. She was asking her to do the same things. Wash the dishes, fold the laundry. Before, when she admired Sarah, then everything that she did in service of Sarah was an honor, a pleasure, a joy. But once she was taken in and she became pregnant right away and she thought like she was more righteous than Sarah, suddenly whatever Sarah asked her to do, wash this is fold the laundry, she said, what? I'm supposed to be working for Sarah? So it was the same workload, but suddenly she felt like she's working me so hard. She's making me sweat. She's giving me back-breaking labor. Same labor, different mindset. So if we're constantly really with the mindset of we're always serving Hashem, and everything we do in service of Him, even if it means that we're working intensely hard, it's always a joy. Once it starts to become a burden, that means that there needs to be some type of spiritual chiropractic adjustment because there's something, there's something in the puzzle that isn't right that has to be fixed. And that's why the Rebbe encouraged everybody to have a spiritual mentor. Very, very important. I have my spiritual mentor that I speak to when I need to face my spiritual problems. It's very important to have a mashpia. Everybody has to have, it doesn't have to be a perfect person. We're all human beings. Just has to be somebody who you look up to in serving Hashem, who feel you feel like she's at least one step ahead of you on the way. She's a good person to call and discuss your, your issues with and advance together in serving Hashem.